0: Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Good morning. If you're new to our church, my name is Dave. I serve as the lead pastor here, and uh... There was a movement on Facebook to dress up and wear a bow tie for Christmas service. And I was under the pressure to be a much more widespread movement. (laughs) But I just wanted you to know this is the first time in my 47 years of life that I put on a bow tie. And so I'm sharing that with all of you this morning. One of the things that I really love about our Christmas service is it's, in a way, a kind of homecoming as well. And if you look around the room, you'll, you'll see some faces that once were part of this family and God has called away to other places. They are serving the Lord abroad, and during Christmas time, so often we see familiar faces, old friends come home, so that's a particular joy for today as well. You've now heard this morning the text of Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 20, read for you twice, once by the children, once by our college-age students. And uh, it's the text from which I want to draw this morning. If we can get that first slide up, uh, the title of the message is Glory to God. And we want to talk this morning about this word glory, which I think is a familiar word to a lot of people, but like so many words, it's very familiar, but it's not always clear exactly what is meant by the word. So I want to explore the word glory with you this morning in the context of Christmas. Now, if you know me at all, you know that I love movies. Some of you are concerned I love movies too much. But I just love movies because I feel like one of the most powerful things God has given to us is the gift of story. And I know this, it's hard to listen to a lecture, but it's really easy to listen to a story. And that's why I think if you look for lessons in your life, they're not always easy to find. But if you pay attention to your life as an unfolding story, there's so much truth that comes out in that story. One of the most thought provoking movies in the last 20 years, in my humble opinion, is The Truman Show. Now, I don't know if you've seen this movie. If you haven't, um, stop watching the junk you're watching. Watch movies like this. This is such a thought provoking movie. On so many levels, I remember the first time I watched it, I wanted to talk to people about it for like two months, because on so many levels, I felt like it reflected the truth about human life, and there were so many pointers to the truth about the gospel and about what it's like to be a human being in a world that is so finite and constricting and limited that every once in a while, we have this sense that there's something more, and once in a while. If God is gracious to us, we poke through that shell and we catch a glimpse of it. And that's really the story of Truman. The Truman Show is about a guy who from birth, his whole earthly life was a a TV show finally produced. And what's amazing is for most of that story, he's perfectly content in a fake world, in a fake life where everyone else is in on the secret that his life is our entertainment. And everyone else involved in his life, his best friend, his parents, his own wife, are all extras. <laughs> he lives in this perfect seaside community. Now, if, you, if you've ever been to Irvine, California, or the Glen a little closer to us, it's kind of like that where everything's so new and so manicured, it's creepy. It's almost like, hey, this isn't real. I feel like I'm on a movie set. And I'm going to get punked any second here. It's like that, where it's just this perfect seaside community, except the sea is not real, (laughs) the community is not real, and everyone who lives there is just pulling a shift on a job so they could be the background of Truman's life. And because it's so well produced, he has no idea ever that this is happening. And vicariously through Truman's life, people are living a second life that's very different from their own. But things start to happen that start to poke holes in the shell of this perfectly manicured story. And Truman gets wise to this, and he starts to take a closer look at the life he thought he always knew. And as he looks closer, now that he's paying attention, now that he's looking, he's starting to see glimpses of something beyond this world which was so familiar to him. This world that was the only life he had ever known. And little by little, I won't give away the whole story, but man, 16 years later, it's not that much of a spoiler alert, right? I mean, it's it's been out for 16 years. But eventually, events unfold, and he reaches the edge of his world, and he finds a way out. I think in so many ways, the story of Truman is the story of us. And I think there is this world we live in that is so familiar... And we've done our very best to make it a world we can love. We've tried our best with what resources we have available to surround ourselves with the kind of things and the kind of people that make this world palatable. And it's all we've ever known, and so we decided in our hearts, it's good enough. It's enough for us. And the truth is, on most days, it really is. That even if we suspect there may be more, what we have for most of us in middle-class suburban America, it's good enough. But once in a while, something strikes us, doesn't it? This suspicion that maybe turns into a hope or even a longing for something beyond this very limited world that we know. I mean, just the other day, I was watching a Bulls game, and, you know, one of my favorite things is to come home from a day at work and then just have nothing else that obligates me that evening and turn on a Bulls game and sit down on my couch and have no other responsibilities and just watch the Bulls play basketball. I used to say that about the Bears, but you know how that is. Um, It's one of the great joys in life. It's a simple pleasure, and I used to look so forward to that moment when they would tip off, and I'm just sitting there taking it all in. But the other day, as I was watching, I was just struck by how I really don't care what happens in this basketball game. I care, but not nearly as much as I used to care, because it struck me, and and it's just, it's not every day. It's just once in a while you get this moment of clarity. None of this really matters. It's not that important, And if this is the most exciting part of my day, something's really missing in my life. I want more. And, you know, I'm not trying to be preachy here, even though I'm preaching. Most days, I'm totally happy with the Bulls game and nothing else to do. But once in a while, I get impatient, intolerant of the smallness of the life I live every day. The writer of Ecclesiastes hinted at that when he said, that God has planted eternity in the human heart. I think what he's really trying to say is that God has deposited into us from birth a suspicion, a longing for something more than this world will ever be able to deliver. And that includes if you take this earthly journey to the absolute pinnacle of what a human being can experience. Some of us in this room are at the base of that mountain, and we can only imagine through stories and magazines what the height of human experience might be like. Some of us are two-thirds up that mountain, and know we've seen things most other people in this room will never see. We've met people, some people in this room will never be in the same room with. And even so, even if you've ridden this trolley car to the last possible station, at moments of clarity and honesty in the dark of the night, there's this aching suspicion that this cannot be all. That you meet famous people and you're like, actually, they're just like everybody else. You get to know them, they're a jerk. You make tons of money and you're like, well, it's, it's about like when you had kind of a lot of money. It's just everything upgrades a little bit. And even though it's nice, there once in a while comes a moment where you realize, I want more. There's got to be more than this. I think sometimes cynicism, pain, doubt, disappointment, they start to cake over our hearts. And even though that eternity is deposited, we start to talk ourselves out of that hope. We say, what are you going to do anyway? At the end of the day, there is this world we live in. It's not the greatest world, but it's what we have, such as it is. And with the rest of humanity, we say that phrase, which you guys know I don't like very much. It is what it is. Fatalism, acceptance, the death of hope. And we say, you know, what else, where else are you going to go? This is my life. But even when you get to that point, that longing doesn't really die completely, does it? C.S. Lewis, in what I, I think is one of the finest essays ever written, it's an essay called The Weight of Glory. It's a beautiful, thought-provoking essay. If you've ever read it, you'll know what I'm talking about. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend it to you. It is accessible, but it's deep. So you're going to have to read it maybe two or three times and chew on it before the juices dripped on your chin and you fully get it. But it's one of the most important and, and thought-provoking essays I think ever written. And in it, he speaks of this longing that we have, and yet how easily we are satisfied with lesser things. And here's what he says. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. Now, make no mistake, Like many of you, I have experienced the exhilaration of new car smell, of turning the key in the deadbolt of a new home and realizing this is ours now. I've stood at an altar and watched a beautiful girl promise the rest of her life to me. I've been four times in hospital delivery rooms watching that beautiful girl shoot a baby out of her body and thinking, that's my kid. This human life is full of wonder, and I'm not here to tell you it's not. There is so much that you will see and experience in just one human life. But in the midst of all of it, there are pointers or hints in all of these great things to something greater still. That if in this broken, fallen, ugly world, we can experience joy like that, They are pointers to the fact that we know this is joy, we know this is good, because we were made for something that is unceasingly and infinitely greater, and this earthly life is preparing us for that world to come. See, I think the angels gathered in that field watching their flocks that night were struck with terror because that angel's visit was something totally unexpected it was as if God punched a hole through the sky and said you guys think that this is your world but look out that hole and see that you're trapped in something but there's more beyond and I think in a moment of encounter with God it's very easy to imagine that our longings are not unfounded that this thing we've always wanted the suspicion that there's more that it's real that it has a real object that may be somewhere out there. There actually is more than this world. But once you leave the presence of God, it's so easy for that stirring to fade away, isn't it? Let me ask you something. Have you ever been in a church setting and heard something or seen something that was so profound? Or have you ever been overseas serving on a mission trip and you experienced something that shook you to the foundations and you said to yourself, I will never be the same again? Interact with me a little bit. Have, have any of you ever been there? Just raise your hand. Don't be ashamed if you have having That's okay. That means your day is still coming. But if you've ever been there where you said, this experience right here, this thing I've just listened to or understood, it's going to mark me for the rest of my life. And I've been there several times. But then you know what happens is I leave the place where I saw that, where I had that encounter, and the ordinariness and the smallness of my life come rushing back in, and I talk myself out of it. That happens. And I think God understood that even though the sight of this angel struck terror into the hearts of these shepherds, the message he carried was such an ordinary-seeming message. He said, look, and you can imagine this angel with six wings. I wish we had an awesome sound system, because then I would play some deep bass, some Dolby whatever, seven-point whatever they have now, and just let you hear what it must have sounded like to hear the beating wings of an angel that is from another world and the resonance of his voice as he says, Today, in that little town just over the hill, the savior of the human race was just born. And he's saying this, but then at the end what he says is, Here's how you're going to know. You're going to go from this place Find a little barn and a manger there, and inside will be a baby wrapped in cloths, and that baby will be the savior of the whole world. It's a very familiar setting, but aren't you just so used to that story? Aren't you just so used to seeing a little fake baby from Toys R Us wrapped in a towel, sitting in a fake manger going, I just don't get why that's so special. And I think God knew that because even though an angel of magnificence had told them that, they would walk from that magnificent presence into the most familiar of settings for them, a barn that smelled of farm animals. That's their whole world. If you've ever walked onto a farm, you're like, it just smells like poop. That is a shepherd's whole world. That's all they ever smell. Oh, smell that fresh poop air. And so here they are in the most ordinary familiar setting. And there's this little baby just sitting there. And maybe they're expecting like a halo around the baby's head. Maybe the baby's going to get them and go, what's up, guys? I look like a baby, but I'm the son of God, you know? Maybe you're expecting some unexpected, but they come and they see it and it's just like, oh. like I've seen a thousand babies. And that one right there looks just like all the rest of them. And even though an angel had spoken the words, you see that baby and all you're going to think is, I guess we're going to have to wait a really long time to see, <laughs> at least like 30 years, if this little baby's going to come up to be anything. It's a little underwhelming, and that's why I believe the next scene is so important. And it says that after the first angel, which struck terror in their hearts, had spoken, it's like God peels back the sky, and suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Now the words behind that phrase, a great company of the heavenly host, the the largest number that the Greek language had a number for is 10,000. And when you see 10,000 upon 10,000, it's not just literally a million or a hundred million. It is saying that the sky was filled from horizon to horizon. If one angel made you want to wet yourself, can you imagine seeing them stretched from horizon to horizon so that the night turned into day and you are overwhelmed? I think it would have physically knocked us over had we been there. And it's interesting that God starts with one angel Was huge. you, sh- hey. Don't freak them out. They're going to die if all of us show up at once. You first go and soften them up. Get them used to the whole angel appearance thing, and then all 100 million of the rest of us are going to go. So you can imagine how they were waiting behind the night sky to come make their appearance. I love this painting, which depicts what it might have looked like to see angels just spread out. And you see the shepherds on the bottom with arms outstretched, just overwhelmed by it. And the reason that is such an important scene is it's as if God is saying, you're going to leave this place and this message of glory will quickly fade into something very ordinary and familiar. And that's why I want you to know that that baby you're going to see in the manger is no ordinary baby. He is a baby who comes from among us. And he ripped open the heavens and said, I want you to see... Who he really is. So that you are never tempted even for a minute to think, eh, it's just another kid. Because this baby is unlike any other baby you will ever meet. You know, for some of you, the majority of people in this room are relatively strangers to you, right? You've been coming to this church for a while, but you know those few people you know. But you may not know everyone in this room. Do you know that there are people in this room who, if you could follow them for a day of their life, your jaw would drop? You would not believe the circles in which they travel. And it would strike awe into you because on the outside, you go, Hey, there's some guy I met at church. We shook hands. He's nice enough. But if you knew the life he lives and the world he comes from, you would take a double take. You wouldn't believe your eyes. And I think that's really at the heart of it, is that God knows how quickly glory fades from the human experience. And so he wanted us to at least have one glimpse to show us, don't ever try to make me smaller than I am. This world will conspire all the time to do that. But don't ever let me shrink in your eyes. If you're ever tempted to think I'm just another guy, remember the scene of majesty when the heavens ripped open and a hundred million angels lit up the night. Because that's the truth about God. So often when the Bible uses the word glory, what it's trying to say in a very clumsy, limited way is this. There are things that you as a human being simply are not formatted to write to your hard drive. There are things that, it'd be very much like a caveman trying to make sense of Dave and Buster's. Can you imagine what that would look like? Just the sounds, I think he would actually go insane of stimulus overload. It's too much. And it's as if whenever the Bible is speaking of this glory, he's saying, there is a reality which if you saw it without shelter, without shielding, I mean, why do we say when we're naked, there I am in all my glory? Because there I am as I am with nothing between you and me. You don't want to see that, right? My glory is nothing. But when God strips away every layer of protection that allows us to deal with him, what you see would kill you. There is a world and a reality that is so foreign to us, so far beyond anything this small world can envision, that as we struggle to find words to describe it, we can't really do it. What words would a caveman use to describe Dave and Buster? He'd be like, ooh, 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 ooh. I hear you trying. What are you saying? It's like fire. It's like sounds. it?" You couldn't do it because what would he draw on to describe what his whole existence had never seen? Imagine going to this family in the 1950s and going, where I come from, we have 4K and IMAX. What's that? It's, It's like looking at me right now only on a screen. I mean, it's that clear. Do you understand the struggle that God has to show us who he is. And so we use language. I mean, Christmas, we celebrate the ultimate expression of God wanting us to know him. He goes, I can't do it. Every time I sign angels, these guys freak out and faint. They fear for their lives. I cannot show them my glory this way. The only way I'll get them to see is to put on meat and bones just like them and become one of them and show them, I am with you. You would die of fright if you saw me as I am. But I need you to know that I'm not here against you. I am here for you, and I am here with you. Now, why does glory matter? Glory matters because every day of our lives, there is this subconscious drive to reduce Jesus to a level, a form that I can deal with. I know in my finiteness, I can't handle the full thing. And so I dampen them down. If you have an iPhone, you know that sound check thing in the preferences for music? I hate using it because it dampens the sound, and I, get, I don't get that full blasting of music through my headphones. So I always turn off that thing which is meant for my safety, to protect my eardrums. I want the volume turned up to 11. But I think what happens to most of us is we put on sound check for life. We, we know we can't handle the fullness of God. And so we're always trying to figure out, how do I manage this Jesus? How do I make sure that I'm not going to go to hell and that I'm going to have my kids going to grow up knowing right from wrong and all that, but I don't want to get crazy with it. I don't want to be like those guys who get carried away and Jesus is all they ever talk about. Jesus this, Jesus that. I don't want to be like Moody Radio. It's Jesus 24-7 all day, all night. Jesus is good in in measured doses, but I'm not going to go drink the Kool-Aid and jump off the deep end and become a Jesus freak. And I totally get that spirit. But really, everything worth it in life, we dive into 100%, don't we? And there's this desire we have to make Jesus somebody who fits into the life that I understand and that I'm okay with. I think the reason that we have a hard time worshipping sometimes is because we have given into the temptation to make Jesus somebody we can manage. And the truth is, at the end of the day, Jesus doesn't ask too much of us. He doesn't demand too much from us. He doesn't invade our lives. He hasn't taken over everything. And as a result, Jesus is in a tidy corner of our lives. And the Jesus we have finally settled with is really not a Jesus worth worshipping. It's what Mark Driscoll in his early days called hairdresser Jesus. That oil-painted guy with the beautifully coiffed brunette hair who looks like someone you could beat up. (laughs) He's always smiling, he's always gentle, he's always got a glow of light behind his L'Oreal hair. The Jesus we sometimes end up with is not anybody who demands our respect. See, there are people you've given a much greater place in your life. And that's why when they email you or call you in the dark of the night, you spring up to your feet and you go. Maybe it's your boss at work. Maybe it's your mother or your father. Maybe it's your best friend or your spouse. But there are people in our lives who have the fast track, the speed dial right to our hearts. And when they summon... We take that stuff seriously. Some of us have a group of friends we're more loyal to than anyone else in the world. And if they said, hey, dude, we're going out, you need to come with us, that takes all priority over everything else, doesn't it? Because that's really who I esteem in my heart. They have the power to trump every other agenda and plan and priority because that's really the person that I revere. And often Jesus doesn't occupy that hallowed place in our lives. And that's why when we try to worship him, we're trying to reach down deep into a well and say, where is the worship in my spirit? Why do I feel so dry today? Why does it feel so hard to honor God? And I'm here to suggest to you that part of the reason for that is because we have made God into someone that really doesn't inspire worship. He's been managed and reduced I'll close with this. I've often spoken of a night that I think legitimately made a permanent mark on my life. Many years ago, I would estimate maybe 17 years ago, in the very earliest years of our church, I took a group of college students camping over the weekend to one of the national parks in the tri-state area on the border of Iowa, Wisconsin, and Illinois, and I remember We climbed up this hill and we found a ridge, and there was a promontory overlooking the west bank of the Mississippi River. And it was about midnight when we got up to the top. We all lay down on this rock overlooking the river and just stared up at the night sky. And after about 30 minutes of just laying there in the dark, the stars started to pop up, and we could see them. After about an hour, we can make out satellites. I don't know if you've ever been in a place where the night sky is so clear. We could see satellites just arcing over the horizon. I've never seen anything like it. It felt like I was on the surface of a comet floating through outer space. It was the most out-of-body type experience I think I've ever had. I forgot that there were other people around me. We were there till past 2.30 because we were so lost in the wonder. Conversation died down, and we were just staring in awe. And listen, over the course of my Christian life, I've been told so many times that it's not about me. And a side of me goes, yes, yes, you're right. The Bible says so as well. And I know it intellectually. I accept it. But that night, in that single experience, in one hour... I really understood that it's not about me. I have never felt so small and insignificant and humble as on that night, as I lay there and looked at the cosmos and thought, man, am I one really small part of this whole big deal. See, it's in that one experience of encountering true glory, something infinitely bigger than me, that all those other truths that are being spoken finally find pay dirt. That one night, I feel like I got a lifetime's worth of theological truth about who I am and who God is. And nobody had to sit next to me and go, Hey Dave, you see that night sky? Doesn't it make you feel small? I didn't need anyone else telling me because just like a great movie or a great story, it says it all right there. And I think one of the things that we need to ask God for this Christmas is that somehow he would break out of the smallness that we've confined him in and just burst out in glory. That, that he would give us a glimpse of what he's really like. A glimpse that would be so undeniable, so real, so experiential, that rather than having to try to worship him, Worship would just flow out. I'm convinced that worship, true worship, is never something we produce by trying really hard. I think true worship is a response to something. I don't think I can worship something on command, but when something is worthy of worship, I gush. I'm in awe. I can't stop shaking. I can't stop talking about it. And I think the one longing on our hearts this Christmas should be, I want to see my familiar Savior through those eyes again. I want to see a God worth worshiping, because that's in fact the God we really have. And the amazing thing is that he comes from this place that would blow our circuits, but he entered this small and finite world because he really loves us. And you know what love feels like. You may be sitting next to somebody who has spent a great deal of time and energy showing you what love feels like. Do you know that we recognize love because the one who made us loves us more than anyone else? You were not made simply for the love of another human being. But you were made for the love of God who made you. And when you are secure in that love, you will feel whole and like yourself. That's what Jesus came to do, and that is really the glory of Christmas. So I invite you and I challenge you, if sometime over the course of your life, Jesus became small, someone easy to ignore, ask him to take the mask off and show you his glory. Ask him for an experience that will shake you forever. That will remind you who he really is so that you'll never be able to put him in a corner again. I meant it when I said ask him because I don't think you can do that for yourself. Your imagination is just not that good, and neither is mine. So ask him. You'll be surprised in what interesting ways God chooses to show you his glory. Would you bow with me just for a word of prayer? Let's pray together. Invite the worship team to make their way back up. Sometimes it's an expression of kindness. Sometimes it's a lyric in a song or the look on your child's face as she's sleeping at night. Sometimes... It's a familiar passage of scripture which for some reason you read one day and it stirs something inside of you. Sometimes it's a memory which has been buried in years and years of living hard and fast. God will reach you in a lot of different ways if you simply ask to be reached. And if you're bored of God, or you're not inspired to awe, ask Him to show you who He really is. Because if you see Him, you will not be able to control your response. So I think that's a good prayer for us to pray together as a church. I want to see you in a way that makes me worship. That breaks you out of the familiar into someone That inspires awe. Let's pray that together right now. Throughout this week, I've been praying especially for two kinds of people at our church. One kind of person I've been praying for is somebody who has grown up for many years in the church. And maybe once you saw God in His glory and He stirred you, but over the years, something has fallen asleep in you. And you find yourself struggling in your faith. It's been a long time since God inspired all in you. I've just been really praying that God would do something to break through that. Because I don't think you plan to end up there. I don't think you enjoy being there. But it's not the kind of thing you can deliver yourself from. God needs to break through. So that you see Him And the reaction is not voluntary. So I'm going to just pray for you right now. God, for those who once saw your glory and have forgotten. Who are wrestling with a heart that is getting colder and number by the day. Break through the ice and reveal yourself to us in a way that is fresh but also familiar. We want to see your glory once again. We just believe that we can't get there by ourselves. You have to break through. So be faithful, God, to those who are struggling in their faith. Show us who you really are, we pray. I've also been praying for another group in our church. You know, people who have never really started a relationship with God. But a lot of people at church have shown kindness and real love to you. You appreciate some of the teaching and the music. But all this while you've been around the church, you've never fully understood what the big deal is about this Jesus. There's been hints, flashes, but something is missing between you and him. And I've really been praying for you as well that God will finally break through that fog and show you what is so compelling. I don't think you're trying to dodge him or run from him. I think until you see, you can't see. And so the prayer I've been praying all week for you It's a prayer I'd like to pray right now. God, for those who are so close but do not see fully, for those who appreciate you, even admire you, but don't really see you as you are, would you in your kindness take down every barrier between you and them and open the eyes of their hearts so that they would see you. Help them to see How much you love them. How unconditionally you accept them. What an amazing plan you have for their life. It's impossible for us to open our own eyes, God. And so we ask you to do this kindness for those among us who cannot see you. Let their eyes be opened up that they might fall genuinely to their knees in all of you. Do this for your own sake and for theirs, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org Thanks for listening.